Well, good morning to you. Quick question, who is still eating leftovers from Thanksgiving? Oh yeah, quite a few hands going up. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, Glad you could be here. As Michael said, my name is Kyle Denny. I am the youth pastor as well as the director of finance. So if you have any questions related to middle school, high school students, or money, uh, I am the guy to go to. Um, So just as a quick plug, there is no youth group tonight. Uh, If you show up at the student building, you are going to be there all by yourself. So pity party for you. Uh, That being said, we are going to enter into a really confusing passage today. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 13, if you want to flip there. And it's going to read more like a tragedy for every character that is involved. But it's a tragedy with a purpose. And so if you have a Bible and you want to flip there, uh, you can. There's Bibles underneath your seats. Otherwise, we'll put the verses on the screen as well. But this passage takes place hundreds of years before Jesus. And it follows the nation of Israel. And Israel was meant to be this nation that was set apart for God. They were to wholly follow God. And by doing so, they would be this shining beacon to the nations around them. They would declare who God is And they would also be a blessing to the nations around them. But sin and rebellion kept getting in the way. And so the one nation of Israel got split into two because of sin. And you had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And our passage takes place right after this split has occurred. God spoke to a Jewish man named Jeroboam that he was going to be the king of the northern kingdom. And he told him this far before there were any fracture signs that the nation was going to split. And he made him a promise. If you walk in my way, if you do what is pleasing to me, man, I will be with you. I will give you a reign that is similar to King David's reign. He had good things in store for Jeroboam. But fear and anxiety get a chokehold on this king. After he is made king, he realizes and starts stressing about the fact that all the northern kingdom is going to have to go to the southern kingdom to worship God at a temple in Jerusalem. And that freaks him out because he thinks, not unlike a jealous boyfriend, that the southern king will woo these people back to him. He will reunite the kingdom and then he'll be without a kingdom and more importantly, without his life. So he doesn't trust God. He doesn't trust the promises that God made him. And so he talks to his council of people and they give him some real sage advice. They're obviously not historians. They say, well, if they want to worship, man, let's, let's just make some golden calves. We'll let them worship right here. And the irony is obviously, if you know your Old Testament, the last time someone did that, it didn't turn out super good. Like it, it was awful. But Jeroboam embraces the council. Like he even makes his own self-made feast and holiday for it. He makes his own thanksgiving to celebrate this self-made religion. And our story picks up with Jeroboam arriving to the feast. He is ready to rewrite Israel's history and kick off his fake religion to made up gods. Read with me in verse one. It says, now behold, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, while Jeroboam was standing at the altar to burn incense. And he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. 
Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall burn on you. Then he gave a sign on the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn to pieces, and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. Now, Jeroboam has spent some money, some time, and lots of thought. Not great quality thought, but lots of thought on this new religion. He is ready to kick it off. He is at the altar. He is burning incense, ready to go, when suddenly this no-name from the southern kingdom shows up. And he is just a total party pooper, isn't he? Like just rains on the parade. He doesn't even address the king. He speaks directly to the altar. And he says, altar, altar. And he gives a prophecy as though the king isn't even in the room. Like, tell me that's not a power move, right? The man of God basically says that everything that is being set up here will not last. There will be a southern king named Josiah who makes everything right. He's going to kill the false priests. He's going to go to the graves and drag the bones out and burn this on the altar to make it so despicable, so defiled, that the people will never turn to it again. Jeroboam gets to know the ending before the beginning really starts. Isn't that merciful of God? God gives him a warning. And it comes from this man of God. We don't get a name, no idea who this guy is. We just get a description. He is someone that is a representative of God. And I know that seems elementary. I know that seems obvious. But that's a very important key to understanding this passage. He is a man who represents God. This chapter, it's all about Jeroboam and the word of the Lord. But this man of God has a part to play, as we're soon to see. As you can imagine, the king, not particularly thrilled to hear this news. In verse 4, it says, Now when the king heard the statement of the man of God, which he cried out against the altar in Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! But his hand, which he had stretched out toward him, dried up, and he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn to pieces, and the ashes were poured out from the altar in accordance with the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. The Jeroboam truly doesn't know who God is, does he? Like God flexes his power a little bit, pun intended, and Jeroboam's hand dries up. Like it withers. And I just wonder, what is Jeroboam thinking and feeling in that moment? Like, does his stomach drop? Does the air get sucked out of him in surprise? Does he start thinking, maybe this wasn't such a good idea? Or does he remember the promises that God gave him? The, the text doesn't say. Just that his hand dries up and he can't even pull it back. It is so withered. Hands in that day were related to authority, and God dries up Jeroboam's authority in an instant. Don't miss that. Jeroboam didn't like what the word of God had to say, yet he was powerless to stop it. Again, isn't that a merciful thing to know that you're actually not in control at all? Like it's a judgment 
in a show of God's power? Absolutely, yes. But Jeroboam has just come face to face with reality that he's not really in charge here. And then the fireworks really go off. The altar explodes. It gets torn into pieces and ashes pour out. Now these ashes are most likely this fatty, ashy mixture that bubbles, you know, it pours out over. And who is standing right at the altar? Jeroboam. So that is both gross, embarrassing, and shameful to everyone that is around. God vehemently declares, this is not the way you worship me. Horrible kickoff to the new false religion, right? Like I would not want to be one of those PR guys trying to figure out how do I spin this? You know, well, eh, nope, not going to work. This southern kingdom, man of God, is the real deal. God sent him. God spoke through him. God performed miracles and signs through him. It's unmistakable. He is a man who represents God. And the king takes notice. He raises an eyebrow, right? In verse 6, the king responded and said to the man of God, Please appease the Lord your God and pray for me, so that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God appeased the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it was before. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and, and I will give you a gift. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he had come to Bethel. Notice Jeroboam's word choice. He says, please appease the Lord, your God. Not our God, your God. Jeroboam aims to start a false religion. And God not only dries up and withers his hand, but he also restores it. I think I would have just let it stay withered for a while to make a point. But Jeroboam he changes from an angry command to a humble plea. Please appease the Lord. Please intercede and ask the Lord to restore. And God restores it to him. Man, what would happen if Jeroboam lived his whole life, if he ruled with this humbleness towards God? Arresting the prophet obviously wasn't going to work, but what about cozying up to him? Like the man of God wields the authority and the influence to not only shrivel hands, but also to restore them. Like surely that is a guy you want to know, right? That is someone that you want to think well of you, if not to have in your pocket to owe you a favor. But he gets forcibly shut down by the man of God. Like he was commanded not to eat bread, not to drink water, or return by the way that he came. And it's here that I just want to hit the pause button and ask why? Like, why does God command that? Is he a micromanager? Does he want to make our lives difficult with unnecessary commandments just to see if we'll obey? No, this is where some of the cultural differences fail us. Remember, the man of God is someone who represents God. He has just performed prophecies and signs and miracles. How would it look then if he went and had a nice little meal with Jeroboam? What would that communicate to the people around him. A meal means so much more now than it does then. It means so much more then than it does now. So for instance, 
I can drive all the way through McDonald's, I can get a double cheeseburger, I can come back, I can eat it in my car alone, and it will take me about 10 minutes. You know, I'm not speaking from experience here or anything, or maybe I am, don't tell my wife. But we are about convenience and speed, right? Thanksgiving obviously being the exception, but typically that is what our mindset is with a lot of meals in our day. That is not so in the Old Testament. Meals in the Bible are not treated that lightly. They affirm kinship and friendship and goodwill. They can represent one's status. And they, more importantly, show peace and harmony between two parties. If this man of God goes and eats a meal with the king, it's going to tell a story to everyone. That there is peace and harmony with the king and God. It's going to affirm this false religion that is detestable to God. This man of God represents God and his actions are incredibly important. Likewise, if the man of God refuses to have a meal, that is also going to speak volumes to the people around. And so God commands. He doesn't give advice. He doesn't say, you should really think about. The creator of everything commanded this man of God, do not eat bread. Do not drink water. But what about the last one? Like, why does he have to not return by the way that he came? It's an incredibly inconvenient command. There is one highway that goes from Judah all the way up to Bethel. And so to not return that way would lead to a more dangerous path. It'd be more cumbersome. Why does God command that? You're going to get sick of hearing me say it, but the man of God is someone who represents God. His actions can also be seen to represent God. One theologian demonstrates that not to return by the way you came is a fairly common Old Testament way of saying be different or even avoid past mistakes. So this man of God is speaking to Jeroboam with his actions. There is not harmony between you and God and you need to take a different path. You need to return a different way from all this evil, Jeroboam. And the man of God sets out to return home. Now, if the story ended here, it would only be a potential tragedy for Jeroboam. But like I said earlier, it's a tragedy for everyone involved. And so we get this second stranger story to follow. It says in verse 11, Now an old prophet was living in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the deeds which the man of God had done that day in Bethel. The words which he had spoken to the king, these also they were reported to their father. And their father said to him, which way did he go? Now his sons had seen the way that the man of God, who came from Judah, had gone. Then he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode away on it. So he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? He said, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. But he said, I cannot return with you, nor come with you, nor will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. For a command came to me by the word of the Lord. You shall not eat bread, nor drink water there. Do not return by the way that you came. Then he said to him, I too am a prophet like you. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied. Him. So he went back with them and ate bread in his house and drank water. There's a lot of mystery that surrounds this old prophet. Like we, we don't really know who this guy is. 
or what his motives are in wanting to bring this man of God back. I like the way one commentator put it. They said, whatever his motives, and it's impossible to know them for sure, the old man is a mixture of curiosity, dishonesty, accuracy, and conviction. This prophet tracks down the man of God. He invites him home, and the man of God stands strong. He says, no, I was commanded. I can't do that. But then the prophet lies, and the man of God falls for it. Pause button. Why did the man of God fall for the lie? Like, Why was he so easily deceived by that? So, Bible's over here. I'm just going to wander away and talk through my, talk, my thoughts on it. I think it's one of two things. I think one, maybe it's that he knew God's commands really well, but he didn't know the God behind the commands. Maybe he didn't know God's heart as well as he should have. Because in the Bible, when you hear other people described as a man of God, whether that's David or Moses or Elijah or Elisha, they seem to know God's heart well. They know what angers him. They know what pleases him and everything in between. And this man of God, by contrast, seems a little half-hearted. Like he was commanded, do not do this. And some stranger shows up and says that it's suddenly okay to do. And there's no warning sirens that go off in your head. Like maybe he didn't know God as well as he should have. The second thing is that maybe he was longing to disobey. Like maybe he just wanted to return and eat food and drink. It's been a long day. It's hot out. He needs to rest under a tree. An angel told you by the word of the Lord? Oh, all right, good enough for me. Let's go get some munchies. Like you don't question at all why you had to come all the way up from Judah if there was a reliable prophet in the king's backyard. Maybe the man of God was just looking for a loophole to do what he actually wanted to do, which is return and eat and drink. And I just want to ask tenderly, is that you today? Like, do you know God's commands, what you should do, but you don't actually know God? You don't know the loving, merciful God that gives them. You don't know why God gives you these commands. Or are you longing to chase after something that God has forbidden? Like, if that's you, then there is a lie somewhere that you're believing. Don't fall for that. The reason that I think this man of God either didn't know God well or was craving disobedience is because of how quickly he believes the old prophet. Like he doesn't even ask for a sign as a confirmation. You'll remember when the word of the Lord spoke through him to Jeroboam, there was a sign that accompanied it. The altar exploded and blubbery fat poured over ash, right? Now, the word of the Lord doesn't go through him. It goes through a stranger that he's never met. It contradicts what was told him, and there's no sign either given or asked for. Like my auditor spidey sense would be going off the charts right now. How do we even know this guy is a prophet? Now, ultimately, the text doesn't say why the man of God falls for the lie. But what we do know is that disobedience always brings death. Always. The story continues in verse 20. Now, it came about, as they were sitting down at a table, that the word of the Lord came to the prophets who had brought him back. And he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah saying, this is what the Lord says. Because you have disobeyed the command of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, 
but have returned and eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, you are not to eat bread nor drink water. Your dead body will not come to the grave of your fathers. It came about after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled the donkey for him for the prophet whom he had brought back. Now when he had gone, a lion met him on the way and killed him. And his body was thrown on the road with the donkey standing beside it. The lion also was standing beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown on the road and the lion standing beside the body. So they came and told about it in the city where the old prophet had lived. Hard passage, right? What does this passage try to whisper to you about God? That God is unnecessarily harsh? That God doesn't actually care about you? That he just throws his servants away as though they're ragdolls as soon as they mess up? One of the reasons I picked this passage was because there are confusing parts in the Bible all over. And if we're not careful, it is really easy to concoct the wrong conclusion. What is going on here? How is this fair? The man who deliberately lied and deceived someone, he gets used by God. And the man of God, who has been following God and obeying, he comes all the way from Judah, he turns down the food invitations twice, this man gets killed by a lion. Like, this is why I like the God of the New Testament better, right? No, no. Same God of the old as the new. That's a trap. God is good and gracious and merciful and long-suffering. That is always true of him. That is who he is. All along, we have been saying that the man of God is a messenger. He is someone who represents God. Certainly in the words he speaks, but also his actions. This man of God has just declared that there is peace and harmony with the northern kingdom and God. He has just publicly disobeyed the word of the Lord that he himself told people about. God's message is being muddied and publicly disobeyed. And so when God speaks through the old prophet, three times in one verse, he brings up the command. Let me reread it. Verse 21 says, And he cried out to the man of God, who came from Judah, saying, This is what the Lord says. Because you have disobeyed the command of the Lord, and you have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, Three times he says it. Repetition is important in the Bible. Now we have stories about a prophet like Jonah who disobeyed the word of the Lord and he didn't get killed by a lion. Like he got swallowed by a fish, there's that. But he didn't suffer immediate death. And then we have stories like this man of God in which disobedience is immediately met with divine justice. The point is not that God loved Jonah more than he loved this man of God. It's that he is going to use disobedience, even disobedience, to further his message and his purpose. And for Jonah, that looked differently. What needs to be declared right now to the northern kingdom is that there is not harmony. There is not peace. They have to return a different way. And that disobedience always brings death. And so God uses the man of God's disobedience for that purpose. Listen to what happens. Verse 26. Now when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard about it, he said, it's the man of God who disobeyed the command of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn and killed him in accordance with the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. 
Then he spoke to his son saying, saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. Then he went and found his body thrown on the road with the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body nor harmed the donkey. So the prophet picked up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back. And he came to the city of the old prophet to mourn and to bury him. He laid his body in his own grave and they mourned over him saying, oh, my brother. And after he had buried him, he talked to his son saying, when I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones besides his bones. And listen to this. For the thing will certainly come to pass, which he cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar that is in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria. The man of God is someone who represents God, either with his obedience or apparently even through his disobedience. Whether you agree with God's method or not is a bit besides the point. God's message is unmistakable. The old prophet ends this passage convinced that the word of the Lord will certainly come to pass. That is seen both through his words and his actions. Like he retrieves the body of the man of God, the body that is right next to a lion that has just killed someone. He drags it away, he puts it on his donkey, he goes home, he not only mourns over it, but he gives his own grave to bury him in. And then he tells his sons, make sure his bones are placed right next to the man of God's. Like that is both an act of compassion as well as self-preservation. Eventually, some 300 years later, Josiah does come and he rounds up all the bones in the surrounding graves and he puts them on the altar to desecrate them and burn them. All of them except the man of God's and now the old prophets whose bones were put with his. Now, if the old prophet heard this, undoubtedly Jeroboam also got word. Like God's message is unmistakable about what happens if you disobey the word of the Lord. And this is what Jeroboam chose. Verse 33. After this event, Jeroboam did not abandon his evil way, but he again appointed priests of the high places from all the people. Anyone who wanted, he ordained, and he became one of the priests of the high places. This event also became a sin of the house of Jeroboam, even to wipe it out and eliminate it from the face of the earth. Is that not a tragedy? Like God promised Jeroboam good, and instead he turned aside to wickedness. And then God gave Jeroboam every assurance that he was going to do what he promised, that there was not peace but hostility between them, and that he needed to return a different way, but Jeroboam wouldn't. He didn't abandon his evil way, and he flung the gate wide open for it. Why spend a Sunday morning on this? Like, cool story, but that prophecy has already been fulfilled. These people are long gone in this story. And yet God's word has given us a similar prophecy that is relevant for you today. And it's that on your own, there is not peace between you and God. And that God's wrath is coming. Listen to what the word of the Lord says through the apostle Paul in Romans. Chapter 2, verse 4 says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience, 
not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath in revelation of the righteous judgment of God. If you live your life in a way that you are the ultimate authority and you disregard God and his authority as though it doesn't matter, then you are storing up wrath for yourself. The kindness of God, the restraint and the peace that we enjoy now. This is meant to lead us to repentance, not to continued rebellion. Jeroboam kept hardening his heart. He didn't get that. He was stubborn and unrepentant. He refused to come to God. Will you learn from that tragedy? Will you return a different way? For a nanosecond, Jeroboam turned from an angry command to a humble plea, and God restored his hand to him. God longs to restore you to himself. He wants you to have life and fullness, not the death and decay that comes from disobedience. That was never his intent for you, but he will not honor the pride and arrogance that is in our hearts. The only way that leads to restoration the only way that leads to salvation is a humble plea through Jesus Christ. Disobedience always brings death. Always. Jesus is the only one who has already paid for that death on the cross. God's wrath will rain down all around. And the only safe place to stand is where it's already struck, at the cross of Jesus. Come quickly to it. Continue to come to the cross of Christ. And if you have returned a different way, if you're a believer in Jesus, do you continue to live your life convinced that God's wrath is coming? The man of God's actions, they spoke loudly to the people around him. What do your actions say about you? Do you live life with your unbelieving friends and neighbors in a way that pretends that God's wrath is coming or that they're somehow exempt from it? Are you over-preoccupied with sports schedules and jobs and Christmas shopping and final exams that you've become sleepy and forgetful to what God has declared? But God desires all to be saved. That is true. But he also says that the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. His wrath is coming and we're one day closer to it. That prophecy will be fulfilled. Come quickly to Jesus. Be restored and learn from Jeroboam's foolishness. It is a tragedy with a purpose. Let me pray. Lord, I, I thank you that you are a merciful God that you are long-suffering, and that you don't give us commands needlessly, Lord, that you're not cruel, but that you want what's best for us, that you want us to be restored to yourself. And so, man, I, I would pray, Lord, that you would work in the hearts of your people, that you would work in the hearts of uh, people that have opposed you, that they would turn to you, and that they would love you deeper. I, I pray that we would live in light of your wrath, Lord, that this is a momentarily blip on the radar of eternity, and that we would leverage our life well, that we would declare who you are to the people around us, that your kingdom would be built 
and that your name would be glorified. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Hey, if you are looking for someone uh, to pray with you or just to unpack this a little bit further, there's a prayer room over there. We'd love to pray with you, or I would love to meet you up at the stage. So have a great weekend, New Hope.